Good morning. I'm delighted to bring God's Word to you today. If you're a guest with us, this is the part of the service where we read God's Word, we explain it, and then we talk about how it applies to our lives. And so I encourage you now to open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. We'll be looking at chapter 1, starting in verse 7, up through chapter 2, verse 13. And you can find that on page 793 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And while you're turning there, before we begin, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father in heaven, we ask now that by your Spirit, you would give us a spiritual sight of your glory. Would you show us your glory from this word concerning your Son and the hope laid up for us in heaven? We long to hear and believe these gracious and comforting words with the full assurance of faith. So grant us favor in this hour, and give me clarity as I speak. We ask this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Things are not always as they appear. Have you heard those words before? Reality can be much different from the way that we see it in the moment. Appearances can be deceiving. Appearances don't always convey accurate information or tell the whole story, do they? There's more than meets the eye. Someone or something has more merit or facets than is initially perceived. There's a hidden significance greater than is first apparent. We hear these words in movies. We read them in stories. We even say them to one another. We're reminded not to jump to conclusions, not to make unfounded assumptions, not to lose heart in a seemingly hopeless situation. These words are meant to give comfort and grace to those who hear them. And these words tell us something about the nature of life under the sun, don't they? All of us are limited in what we can see and know about what's going on in the world, and even in our own lives. We cannot make ultimate sense of life simply by what we can see. Our vision is limited, and it's inadequate. This is true because we are finite creatures. But our vision of reality is also blurry and distorted because, we are, because of our fallen condition. We are sinners, and our sin blinds us to God and to His majesty and His glory and His goodness and love. And because of sin, suffering exists in the world. And when that suffering intersects our lives, we're tempted to view God through our difficult circumstances. And this is true even for believers in Jesus Christ. When we're discouraged in our exile by the apparent lack of progress in our holiness, our marriage, our ministry, we're discouraged by the ease and prosperity of the wicked, we're discouraged by the gap between God's promises and our present reality, while we may believe that God has ceased loving us, the enemy is too powerful, and that the future is devoid of hope. We see this even in our passage this morning. In the midst of rebuilding the temple during the late 6th century BC, it was somewhat natural for the people of Jerusalem to become discouraged. Though the exiles were back in their homeland, the conditions of the exile continued, and the great restoration foreseen by the prophets was not yet evident. Of course, we know that this was not due to any unfaithfulness on the Lord's part. 
but rather the failure of Israel as a whole to fulfill the conditions for the restoration, which is true faith and true repentance. And yet God, in his faithfulness, sent the prophet Zechariah to this discouraged people with a message of comfort. Despite his people's unfaithfulness, the Lord did not abandon Judah, but remained jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And God promised to return to his people by rebuilding the temple, restoring a new Jerusalem, and dwelling again in their midst. This was fulfilled partially in Zechariah's day, but it would be fulfilled in a greater way during Jesus' first advent and will be fully and finally fulfilled when he returns. The Lord speaks to us through Zechariah today. God has promised to bring full restoration in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is an unconditional promise. It is certain to happen no matter what individual men and women do. And yet, this does not mean that all people will enjoy this restoration. Our participation in these blessings is conditioned upon our true faith and true repentance. Only those who trust in Christ alone will dwell in Zion. So in the words of our passage, we must return to God's city from Babylon. Rejoice in God's dwelling with his people and revere God's holiness. So here's the key question that I want us to consider this morning. Do you view God through your circumstances? Or do you view your circumstances through God? Do you view God through your circumstances? Or do you view your circumstances through God? How you answer that question reveals your view of God and his work in the world and in your own life. But how would Zechariah teach us to view the Lord? What does it mean to see him truly in the midst of our difficult circumstances? That's what I want us to see this morning. So if you're not there already, turn in your Bibles to Zechariah 1, verses 7 through chapter 2, verse 13. I want us to see three comforting assurances followed by three calls to action. Three comforting assurances, followed by three calls to action. And ultimately, it is these words, not the words of man, that are truly gracious and comforting words. And my prayer is that God would comfort you with his word and assure you of his grace so that you will return to him this morning with rejoicing and reverence. So let's begin by considering three comforting assurances in the first three visions up through chapter 2, verse 5. And the first truth I want us to see is this. God's jealousy for his people will restore them in mercy. God's jealousy for his people will restore them in mercy. We see this comforting truth in the first vision of the Lord's hidden horsemen. Look at verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. So the word of the Lord comes to our prophet on a single night, and we're told the Jewish date. Now, according to our calendars, this is February 15th, 519 B.C. It's not going to be a quiz about that, just giving you that information. Darius is the Persian king ruling at this time, and this statement itself is a reminder of how things are not what they should be. If you recall, the earlier prophets had dated their prophecies by the Israelite kings. Isaiah, for example, opens by saying, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, 
which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. But things are different now. A Persian king serves as the reference point. Now, this is two to three months after Zechariah's initial message of repentance in verses 1 through 6. The Lord had declared to his people, return to me and I will return to you. He called the people to turn away from their sin and their evil deeds and turn back to him in repentance with the promise that he would turn to them in mercy. And by God's grace, we see in verse 6, the people repented. They agreed with God about their sin. They were sorrowful for it and they resolved to put God first in their life again. But they were still waiting for God to keep his promise to return to them. And so God's word comes to Zechariah again just before the Jewish New Year, a date often associated with temple building. And his word comes in a series of eight visions that take us up through chapter 6. These first three that we're looking at this morning focus on the community as a whole. And they all have to do in one way or another with the rebuilding of the temple. Now, I want to say a brief word about how to read these visions. Because we're dealing here with apocalyptic prophecy, which I imagine is largely an unfamiliar genre to us. But what we have here is a supernatural unveiling of what is about to take place. And the purpose of apocalyptic prophecy is to give God's people hope in the midst of present sufferings based on God's certain victory in the future over their enemies. In other words, apocalyptic prophecy is uniquely designed to help us to view God truly and rightly, to see Him for who He really and truly is and what He plans to do, even in the midst of our difficult circumstances. And so we need to allow the images and the symbols to, to activate our imaginations so that we too may be given a spiritual sight of reality far greater than we can see with our physical eyes. So let's, let's turn our eyes to the visions. Look at verse 8. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. God has the premier cavalry in his intelligence operation. These mighty steeds run for him. They gallop the earth with angelic jockeys riding on their backs as they patrol to and fro, gathering information about the earth. These are the Lord's spies, his special operations forces, whose task is secretly to observe what is going on in the world and then to provide accurate and up-to-date information upon which the Lord may act. And the Lord had sent them out on this data-gathering expedition And now, Zechariah sees them reporting back to their secret headquarters. And one of the red horses carries this man, who in verse 11 is identified as the angel of the Lord. Now, much ink has been spilled about this mysterious figure, and I do not intend to solve this mystery this morning. But he's clearly the point man, 
And presumably these other horses have riders too because they bring their report in verse 11 that all the earth remains at rest. So that's the report. And one would think that this is good news. There's no warfare. Everyone's getting along. The whole earth is calm and quiet. And yet it was the nations of the world that were experiencing this apparent peace. Not Jerusalem. Not Judah. And so from the perspective of God's people, something is self-evidently wrong with this picture. And that's why the man, the angel of the Lord, responds in lament. Verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? The angel feels deeply this incongruity between the comfort of the nations and the hard circumstances of God's people. It elicits his cry of intercession. How long, O Lord? Notice that his prayer invokes the promises of God found in the scriptures. These 70 years refers to the prophecy of Jeremiah, where the Lord promises, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So the Lord, in his just anger, had exiled his people to Babylon for 70 years because of their rebellion and idolatry. They had broken the covenant. But those 70 years are now almost complete. And the people had repented. And so the time had come for God to show mercy and compassion to his people again. And that's exactly what the Lord does. He speaks to the angel, who speaks with the prophet, who speaks to the people. <laughs> Look at verse 13. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out to the people, right? Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion. And again, choose Jerusalem. God is not unconcerned with the pain of his people. The angel's intercession receives a, a gracious and comforting answer from the Lord. The covenant the Lord made with his people has not been canceled. The blessing shall again flow from Zion to God's people as the temple is rebuilt and the Lord dwells with them once more. God's jealousy will restore his people and mercy. And meanwhile, the nations that are in rebellion against God and opposed to him and to his people, although currently at ease, will soon experience a terrible outpouring of God's wrath. They had gone too far in their mistreatment of the people of God. 
and the Lord's anger would soon shake them from their false security. Well, we often think of jealousy as a negative trait. And that's because jealousy often is a negative thing. For example, if I come across someone who has greater skill than me, greater beauty than me, more money than me, a sharper intellect than me, and if I'm provoked to jealousy because of those things, that's sin. That's a bad thing. Why? Because I don't hold exclusive rights to those things. To be jealous in that situation seeks to grasp at something, exclusive rights to whatever that may be, which is not rightfully mine. And that shows a lack of character, and it will bring harm to that relationship, to that person that I'm jealous of. Well, let's think about a different scenario. What if you're married, and another person, a third party, tries to enter into that relationship, tries to relate to your spouse in a way that is only right for people who have covenanted together in the commitment of marriage. If you are not jealous for your spouse in that situation, something is wrong with you. It shows a lack of character. And it will bring destruction to that relationship because you're not holding on to what is rightfully yours and for which you should be jealous. Did you know that God is a jealous God? He's jealous for the exclusive worship of those whom he has created for his glory. Exodus 34, 14, God says to Israel, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. That's a strong statement. God says, My very name is Jealous. That's how deeply this defines me. I will not tolerate the worship of any other God. I will not give away what is exclusively mine by right. And that divine jealousy, that is good and holy and loving jealousy. If God were not this way, it would be a horror to us. Just as if a husband were not jealous for his wife. God's jealousy for his glory and for his people moves him to mercy. And it activates his anger against the wicked. And church, this ought to comfort and assure us. God's jealousy, as the Bible describes it, it is something utterly untainted by any mean-spiritedness. It is his intense, protective concern for what is rightfully his. His name, his land, his city, his house, and his people. They are his, and he will defend and protect them against all assailants and avenge every wrong committed against them. He is fiercely committed to their welfare. Note the way he refers here to my house and my towns, which includes my people. Jealousy, in this sense, is is another name for love. The kind of love a deeply devoted, honorable man has for his wife. And there is great security in knowing that you are the object of such love. Indeed, to be so loved by God is the true comfort we all need and long for. We can also take comfort in the assurance that God's jealousy to restore his people is matched by his sovereign power to pull it off. The hidden horsemen teach us that God is not absent. He sees everything going on in the world. We may not be aware of their activity, 
But his heavenly patrols pass back and forth throughout the earth, observing everything that occurs and reporting speedily on what they have seen. Nothing takes God by surprise. As Corey Ten Boom wrote, there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. Brothers and sisters, things around us are not always as they appear. We don't always understand what God is doing or why he works in the way that he does. We see faithful missionaries taken from the field through cancer while partying pagans exhibit the best of health. We see churches that preach a false gospel of health and prosperity filled with people while faithful ministries often seem to attract few members. We see loved ones afflicted with lifelong conditions or terminal diagnoses. In the midst of our suffering, we can be tempted to doubt God's love. I don't know the details of your circumstances, but the Lord knows your situation as thoroughly as any other creature he ever made, and as if you were the only saint he ever loved. His heart is warm towards you. And so this morning, I exhort you to cling to God's promises. Now, I love all the wills and the shalls uh, in verses 16 and 17. The promises of God for tomorrow are the anchor for believers today. There are good things in store for you, a hope laid up for you in heaven. So bear the rod patiently for a season, and in time, God will restore, whether in this life or in the life to come. Ultimately, we can be comforted that God's jealousy will restore us in mercy because of what Christ has done for us. God's wrath has been satisfied once and for all by its outpouring on Christ on the cross. His mercy flows to us now from the one to whom the temple on Mount Zion pointed forward to, Jesus Christ. It is in him that we are chosen, in him that we receive God's compassion, in him that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. God's sovereign choice of Christ And all who are in him for eternal life is the foundation for our certain hope in a tragically disordered world. So do you view God through your circumstances? Or do you view view your circumstances through God? If you're here today and you feel falsely calm and secure in your rebellion against the Lord, this vision should shake you. Your present state of ease is artificial and temporary, about to give way to the outpouring of the wrath of the God who sees and cares about your sin and will act to judge it. Peace and quiet now does not mean eternal peace and quiet. But there is hope for you this morning because the gospel offers you the same grace and comfort that it offers us. And you can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So turn from your rebellion and turn to the Lord in mercy who is jealous for your worship. And he will restore you in mercy to himself and comfort you with his love forever. Second comforting assurance, God's resources for his people are sufficient to conquer all their enemies. God's resources for his people are sufficient to conquer all their enemies. Look at verses 18 through 21. And I lifted my eyes and saw... And behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? He said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. 
And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah, to scatter. Zacharias sees four terrible horns. He saw a representation of all the military powers which had oppressed the people of God and scattered them into the exile. And there were four horns, which likely signifies that God's people were attacked from all four quarters of the map, north, south, east, west. And now, in the ancient Near East, defeated captives were made to lie down with their heads under the foot of the conquering king. And that phrase there in verse 21, that no one, so that no one raised his head, is a way of asserting that their victory over Judah was absolute. Or so it seemed. Because if that were all that the prophets saw, this vision would be utterly discouraging. But then the Lord shows them for craftsmen. These are the men the Lord has found to terrify those terrifying horns and to cast them down. Observe the order of the craftsmen. The Lord finds men at the right time. Zechariah did not see the craftsmen first when there was nothing to do, no evil to curb, no enemies to conquer. No, first he saw the horns, then he saw the craftsmen. God does not always spare his people from suffering, but he always provides what they need to persevere through it and rise from it. Observe the number of the craftsmen. The Lord finds enough men for the job. He did not find three craftsmen or five craftsmen, but four craftsmen. There were four horns, and so there must be four craftsmen. From God's limitless resources, he supplies forces competent to meet and match the enemy and prevail. If there are four horn powers lifted up, there are four counter-agents sent, expert at terrifying and casting down. Observe the vocation of the craftsmen. The Lord finds the right men. He doesn't find four authors with pens to write, not four architects to draw plans, not four soldiers to fight battles, but four craftsmen to do this work. They are not from the politically elite, not from the militarily powerful, or the educationally advantaged. They're not of the upper crust of society. Rather, they are just ordinary blue-collar men. By the look of them, there's not much that they can do to these powerful horns. And yet, it is these men whom God appointed to do this work. They will conquer their enemies. Not by their own power, but by God's power as he comes to this rebuilt temple. This vision is a comforting assurance to God's people today in the building project that he has given. The building of Christ's church, which is God's temple. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is not by human power that the forces raged against God's people will be overcome, but by God's power. God chooses the weak in order to shame the strong. God's resources for his people are sufficient to conquer all their enemies. This has been true throughout the history of the church. God has always provided what is needed to protect and preserve his people. When there were great heresies, he raised up valiant teachers of the truth. When there was persecution, he made the blood of the martyrs the seed of the future converts. The same is true for us individually. The craftsmen remind us of what God said through Jeremiah. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. 
God's word, the Bible, is our ever-sufficient weapon in battle, both corporately for the church and individually for every Christian, capable of knocking down every upraised horn. Paul writes, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This same word, this hammer that is so useful for building us up spiritually in battle, is useful in battle against every spiritual foe. Now think about four great enemies that we, the church, face today. The world is our enemy. Jesus told his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates the church. It hates this church and wants to destroy it. All the ungodly trends in the world, materialism, naturalism, desire for instant gratification and more that once ruled our hearts and our passions have now been defeated in Christ. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So remember Jesus' comforting assurance. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. The flesh is our enemy. Our fallen nature, which Christ has subdued, is a resilient foe that remains until our glorification. But we are not left unequipped to put it to death day by day until that final day. We have the Holy Spirit. We can deny the sins that seem the most appealing to us because God's Spirit dwells in us. So then we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The devil is our enemy. Peter warned, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour This leader of all that opposes God stirs up trouble all over the world, and he even endeavors to infiltrate and disturb the church of the living God. And yet Christ came in order to destroy the works of the devil, to cast Satan down from heaven to hell, and so fulfill the ancient decree that God's champion would conquer and crush the head of that serpent. The devil is fierce, but is easily put to flight when we resist him by the Spirit since Jesus has triumphed over him. Indeed, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet as we conquer him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And death is our enemy. Paul said that the last enemy to be defeated is death. Death still has a 100% track record. If there is anything at all that seems to be final, irreversible, terminal, and conclusive, it is death. Despite all the advances of modern medicine, the mortality rate is still one out of one. And if the Lord Jesus tarries, every single one of us will die. Indeed, death as the inevitable conclusion of life must be one of the few things in all of our experience that is met with no exceptions. None. Not one. Death has touched our church family this past year. And even now, we know loved ones who may face death soon. I'm still grieving the recent deaths of some beloved family members. And you may be too this morning. Yet even this great enemy will be conquered. Our Savior Jesus Christ abolished death 
and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Because Jesus died and rose again, never to die again, the sting of death has been conquered for all who trust in him. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Believers will not be hurt at all by the second death. In fact, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can now say with Paul, to die is gain. Because to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Indeed, one day death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire along with the devil and the wicked. So take heart, brothers and sisters. God's resources for his people are sufficient to conquer all our enemies. We too have four craftsmen, if you will. The Word of God, the Son of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. God's resources in his Word, purchased by his Son, empowered by his Spirit, and ministered through and to his ordinary people, are sufficient to conquer every enemy, both now and forevermore. All we have needed, God's hand has provided. So we can press on in faithfulness today in the work to which God has called us, because his mercies are new every morning. Third comforting assurance. God's purpose for his people is greater than their expectation. God's purpose for his people is greater than their expectation. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Zechariah sees a young man who must have caught wind of the Lord's promise in the first vision that the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. And as young men are wont to do, he's ready to go. Let's do this, right? I'll measure it myself. I mean, you've got to admire the youthful zeal. Then the angel who's been talking with Zechariah is approached by another angel who tells him to run and slow that young man down. Tell him that God's purpose for Jerusalem is greater than what the young man expects. The message is essentially, hey, young man, you're not going to need that measuring line after all. Because when this city is built, it's going to have so many people in it and so many livestock in it that it's not going to have any walls. Now, this prospect of a city without walls raises security concerns. And so God calms these fears with the promise, I will be to her a wall of fire all around. This harkens back to when God placed the cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the entrance to Eden. Only this time, it's not to keep God's people out. God's people will be protected, safe inside the city. When the Lord consummates his plan for the new Jerusalem, his people will have nothing to fear because they will enjoy his personal fiery protection. Calvin comments 
Though walls may be high and thick, they may be scaled by enemies. But who will dare to throw himself into the fire? But why will the company of God's people be so large? As we'll see in verse 11, the city will include not only the descendants of Abraham, but also many nations who will join themselves to the Lord and become his people as well. The Lord is the Lord, not only over the Jews, but also over the Gentiles. And his salvation will be universal in its scope. Not in that every person will be saved, but that all nations, tribes, and languages will be represented in his kingdom. And not only will God be the city's protection, he will also be the city's glory. God's presence in the midst of his people, represented by the glory of God in the temple, would again become a precious personal reality. Now while Zechariah anticipates God's glory returning to the, to the rebuilt Jerusalem, there is no indication that the glory ever returned in the Old Testament. And yet the book of Zechariah preserved this hope. And that is why the words of the Apostle John, we have seen his glory, take on such rich significance. God returned to his people in the word who became flesh, the one who tabernacled among his people, the one in whom God's grace and truth came together, the one who made God known. Jesus was the one who was glorified in his death and resurrection, and it's in Christ that we now behold the glory of the Lord. Zechariah's vision of an uncontainable Jerusalem is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gathering of God's people is no longer to a plot of land in Israel, but to the new temple, which in the first instance is Jesus himself, and then to his church, of which Christ is the cornerstone. In the the Bible storyline, Jerusalem comes to represent heaven itself. Revelation 21 draws on Zechariah in his portrayal of a figure who measures the length and width of the new Jerusalem with a measuring rod. We don't have time to read that chapter. I encourage you to go home this afternoon and read it. But it says that the glory of God resides in this holy city that is to come. Listen to just a sampling of these verses. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So this vision shows that the young man's conception of the restored Jerusalem was too small. And it challenges us about our own conceptions. One commentator puts it well. This man has believed the prophet's message that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. But he expects the new Jerusalem to be no different from the old. And he would therefore conform its measurements to those it had before its fall. The man has no vision of a greater city whose builder and maker is God. What about you today? Do you view God and his promises through your circumstances? Or do you view your circumstances through God and his word? All of us, in some measure, deserve the rebuke Luther gave Erasmus. Your thoughts concerning God are too human. We need to heed the words of the hymn, Ponder anew, what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend you.
God's purpose for his people is far greater than their expectation. So we've seen three comforting assurances from these wonderful visions. And now the Lord himself gives three calls to action. Let's look at them briefly. First, return to God's city. Look at verse 6. Up! Up! Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up! Escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, After his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. The Lord is saying to his people still living in Babylon, I scattered you, but now it's time to come home. God's people still in exile are personified as Zion, even though they are far away from their true home. Their urge to escape from daughter Babylon, the personification of their true home's arch enemy. I mean, what has Zion to do with Babylon any longer? Now that the Lord has returned in glory to Jerusalem. So God's people must flee from Babylon and escape to Zion. In Revelation 18, Babylon is a prostitute who deceives the nations. Babylon represents an anti-God world that seduces people to live for themselves rather than for God. Babylon is attractive. Many exiles had become comfortable in Babylon and did not want to return. But the call is the same for us as it was for them. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. After all the wonderful things God has said about this city without walls, he now invites everyone to come to it for salvation. And by this, he does not merely mean that you should seek an affiliation with some particular church, although you should, but that you should come to him and to his son and therefore to his city. And there you should join in the everlasting communion of all the redeemed through faith in the Savior that God has sent. So if you're here today and you are not a Christian, if you have not come to God in faith, God invites you to come out of the world and into his glorious city. Although this world and all it stands for seems so strong, according to man's measuring line, its glory so glittery, its rewards so sweet, this world is passing away along with its desires. But the city of God will last forever. Indeed, in the day of God's judgment, all that is exalted will be cast down. All wickedness, all that is opposed to him, will be judged. And yet God calls you to come in his great mercy, having sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and to rise again from the dead as the cornerstone of God's new city. And Jesus Christ invites you into that city of refuge where he is shepherd and savior and king, the glory in its midst. So won't you come today? Flee Babylon. Escape to Zion through trusting in the Lord Jesus. There and only there Will you be fully protected by the Lord? 
and experience the glory of his all-satisfying presence forever. We'll be there too. And we want you there with us. This call to action is especially addressed to the Jews still living in Babylon, who had comfortably settled down in exile and may have started to forget their true citizenship. How great a danger this poses to worldly believers today. If you are a Christian, then you must love God's church, the city in which you hold eternal citizenship. You must make God alone your glory, the joy of the Lord your strength. You must offer all that you are and have to Him and to His great redemptive work through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what will last forever, long after every earthly city has fallen. And so we offer ourselves to God for the building of His city. If you've gotten lost in Babylon or grown weary of the pilgrimage in exile, I urge you this morning, return to God's city. Remember, God's jealousy will restore you in mercy. If you're a Christian and you've been faithfully walking with the Lord, be encouraged today. The returned exiles continued the work God gave them because they were convinced that his eye was on them. As God's people today, we can also be confident that his eye is upon us. We are the apple of his eye. The Lord loves us so deeply and thoroughly that he will not let those who rise up against us ultimately get away with it. If someone strikes us, it's like, it's like poking God in the eye himself. Even when we are suffering the worst kind of harassment, the Lord sees it, feels it, and he will set it right in the end. So let's be confident in the Lord's love for us, even in the midst of our trouble. Second call to action. Rejoice in God's dwelling. Look at verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Singing and rejoicing are worthy responses now that God has come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's how we give voice to the joy of knowing him. Even in glory, we will sing that new song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. For by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now is the time when many nations are joining themselves to the Lord. Now is the time when Jesus is gathering his elect from the four winds. And when he returns, he will take us all to the new Jerusalem. And there we will forever be with the Lord. And through faith in Christ, we have membership now in the city that is to come. Though now we see that city only by faith, the day will come when it will fill our sight and we will live there forever. And this ought to shape our view of God each day. No matter what our circumstances are here on earth, as hard and as difficult and as weary as they may be, we can still sing and rejoice because God is with us. We can agree with Elizabeth Elliot, who said of her joy and contentment in the midst of suffering, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. O oh, Christian, rejoice in God's dwelling. Jesus, our Emmanuel, has come to save us. His Spirit indwells us, and we have a sure hope of dwelling with our Lord in that new Jerusalem.
And third call to action. Revere God's holiness. Verse 13 concludes, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Be still, be silent in the face of this holy God. He is an all-knowing God, an all-powerful God, a jealous God, a merciful God, a just God, a gracious God, a glorious God. He is God, and there is no other. He has roused himself from his holy dwelling to come to his people and work mighty wonders for them. We dare not view him through our circumstances. He stands set apart from all the limitations and distortions of man's finite and fallen perspective. Rather, we must revere his holiness and stand in awe of him. My prayer is that you would not view God through your circumstances, but view your circumstances through God. He has not left or forsaken his people. Christ is building his church as he promised. The good work he began in us, he will bring to completion. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. So as we begin a new year, let us not lose hope because our eyes are on ourselves and on our circumstances. But let us look in hope to our holy God and faithful God who sustains his people every day to the end. Let's pray. Almighty God, we tremble before you. Who is like you, O Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You alone are holy, we are not. You are God, we are your creatures. You are perfect in wisdom, perfect in power, perfect in mercy, perfect in righteousness. Your steadfast love reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Lord, I pray that your spirit would move mightily to woo sinners from the seduction of Babylon. Cause them to flee that city of destruction and journey toward the celestial city, that new Jerusalem, and seek the glory of your presence. Lord, would you correct our thinking? Banish low thoughts of you from our minds. Help us to grasp the heights of your plans for us. I cannot do this, but you are able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.